is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And for the hour, we're going to talk about the life of Pat Conroy. And if you don't know him, you're going to, and we're done, and you're going to like him. And he was a great American writer. The Great Santini and The Prince of Tides were turned into two of the finest movies about fathers and sons. And my goodness, Pat Conroy had a tough dad. A Marine Corps fighter pilot who, as he often said, was raised to be in war, but never got to fight in one. So the home front became a battlefield. And I think some of the most honest writing about craziness in family, and every family's got some crazy in it, and father and son relationships are some of the toughest and the greatest writers have dug down deep into that well, from Arthur Miller straight to Bruce Springsteen. And I think it's what makes those guys all So good, and what brings them so close to their audience is the writing, honestly, about their fathers. Fathers they love and, in many respects, hate. And so I wanted to have you hear a little bit about Pat Conroy and his life. First, here's Pat talking about his mom. The reading life was inspired, without question, by my mother. And I did not realize this, that when my mother read to me and my brothers and sisters every day, before we went to bed at night. I did not realize that would become my writing voice, the voice I would hear when I'd go to a table. That would become the voice I'd read to my own children when I taught in school, when I read something to my wife. I did not understand she was plotting this thing to take over my life. Because one thing about my mother, she made me obsessed with books. And not only obsessed, I lived through books, and not living through books was not living itself. And my mother, we're not sure she got out of high school, but she taught herself, and she ate up every single library of every town we ever entered. No one ever checked out more books than Peg Conroy. Again, his mom never goes to college, inspires her son to read, and he becomes one of America's finest novelists. So... Never take for granted what influence, folks, you have as parents on your kids' lives. Books were life-changing to Pat Conroy. Take a listen to this. Books are life-changing. I try to write about the life-changing books. I try to write the books that led me to others, and that is one of the great gifts of books. You read one, and it leads you on a pathway that you did not know you would take. Uh, When I went to England, I did not have any idea by turning a corner I would read the complete works of Dickens. To another corner, I'd read the complete works of Thackeray. Uh, look across the street, and Yeats would flower open for me. Uh, Jane Austen. I mean, I, it, it occurred to me so many times that I had to become aware of just what would be happening at the time it happened. But that was one of the glories of living to me, not one of the sorrows. He tells a story here in this interview about how after one of his successful books, The Prince of Tides, which is really dark and really tough, and it's clearly about his family and craziness in his family, a smug, young, very seemingly happy couple comes up and, well, they seem to think that they're very different than the lives he's writing about. Listen to Pat Conroy's exchange with this one particular fellow. I think The Prince of Tides just came out. And he says, hey, man, your family's nuts, huh? I said, yeah, pretty much so. 
They said, boy, you can sure tell from reading that book. I said, yeah, you can. I said, how's your family, pal? And he looks at me and says, oh, my family's great, great. I said, now that we're having a conversation, let's be honest. How far do we have to go before we hit the first crazy in your family? Mom, dad, sister, brother, aunt. His wife broke and finally said, his mother's nuts. <laughs> She's completely nuts. And I said, see what I mean? I said, generally, it's not far from any of us. It's, you know, it's around the corner there. Sometimes in my family, it's much closer than I'm comfortable with. Much closer. But that's the thing about writing and real writing. It makes us all feel less alone. So what would you like the fans to get out of their reading life? Take a listen. I would like people, my readers, my fans, to get out of my reading life this. I would like them to see it as the beginning of a journey. I'd like them to see what happened to me in my journey. Because the one thing I can promise them, if they take it seriously, if they are serious readers, if they are serious imaginers, if they are serious thinkers, they don't know where this journey is going to end. It's a voyage of a lifetime. It'll end with my last conscious thought on Earth. It's taken me places I could not believe. I've traveled parts of the globe. I would not be there except for reading. I've visited the graves of poets in Crete. I've visited Balzac's grave in France. I've gone to graves all over Europe just because I fell in love with these men and women who are no longer alive, who once filled my brain with utter wonder who wanted me to write like them, who wanted me to make characters and build characters, invent cities, invent people. They were so magnificent, people would never be able to keep their hands off my books again, like these ones that went before me, like these writers who made up my reading life. And that's Pat Conroy. And for the hour, we're going to hear from Pat. And, of course, that relationship that he wrote about the most, the father-son relationship and that difficult relationship he had. I think that's why we were all so close to Pat because he wrote so honestly about what is for many of us the most difficult relationship in our lives. Pat Conroy, born on this day in history in 1945. He died in 2016. And as always, our This Days in History brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, a terrific place to study all the things that matter in life, arts, philosophy, history and of course they always spend some time on sports and if you can't get to hillsdale hillsdale will get to you with their free and terrific online courses go to hillsdale.edu that's hillsdale.edu more on pat conroy's story here on our american stories tradition of Patton and MacArthur. 
Bull Meacham lived to be a soldier, but he didn't have a war, so he fought the world around him. They called him the Great Santini. You may now have the privilege of serving under the meanest, toughest, screaming squadron commander in the Marine Corps. Me, has the Great Santini ever let his family down? Yes! You don't trust the Great Santini? No! I don't want you to consider me as just your commanding officer. I want you to look on me like I was God. To that special breed of sky devil known and feared throughout the world, Marines. Yeah! Now you're flying with Bull Meacham now. This is the eye of the storm. Welcome aboard. He was a man of war, but it was a time of peace. Hey, Dad, are you ever afraid when you fly? Hell yes. That's what makes me so damn good. And that's the trailer of the movie, The Great Santini. And Robert Duvall was never better. He may have been as good in The Apostle and several other films, including The Godfather. But I think he'd tell you, Bull Meacham, that character. Well, you saw his character in Apocalypse, too, where he played that crazy, crazy soldier sitting in the middle of the, the killing fields of Vietnam and screaming, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. But let me tell you, Bull Meacham, what a character. And Pat Conroy was born on this day in history, in 1945. And we're covering his story today. And in his words, and before we do that, I want to play a couple of scenes for the great Santini. And if you have not seen this movie, rent it. And you'll love it. And Blythe Danner is amazing in this. And that's Gwyneth Paltrow's mom. Quite an actress. And then rent Prince of Tides. And you'll have really gotten a glimpse of the life of Pat Conroy and the work of Pat Conroy, because those two movies actually and genuinely reflect the character of the novels. And then it'll make you want to read those books, if you're a reader, and even if you're not, because you will not be able to put them down. Here is Robert Duvall, Bull Meacham, the great Santini, giving a pep talk to his soldiers in that movie. Did you know, Dick? Seats, gentlemen. Morning. You may now have the privilege of serving under the meanest, toughest, screaming squadron commander in the Marine Corps. Me. Now, I don't want you to consider me as just your commanding officer. I want you to look on me like I was, well, God. If I say something, you pretend it's coming from the burning bush. Now, we're members of the proudest, most elite group of fighting men in the history of the world. We are Marines, Marine Corps fighter pilots. We have no other function. That is our mission. And you're either going to hack it or pack it. Do you read me? Within 30 days, I'm going to lead the toughest flying of sons of bitches in the world. The 312 Werewolf Squadron will make history or it will die trying. Now, you're flying with Bull Meacham now, and I kid you not, this is the eye of the storm. Welcome aboard. (laughs) Welcome aboard. Carry on. And just moments later in this movie and in the book, we see this. This man could not treat his family any differently than he could treat his soldiers. And this was, in the end, what the book was really about. Let's take a listen to Duval instilling some discipline into his kids. Okay, Hogs, I've listened to you bellyache about moving to this new town. This said bellyaching 
will end as a 15-30 hours will not affect the morale of the squadron henceforth. Do I make myself clear? Yes, yes sir. sir. I know it's rough to leave your friends and move every year. But you are marine kids and can chew nails while other kids are sucking cotton candy. And you're Meacham's. Meacham is a thoroughbred, a winner all the way. Gets the best grades, wins the most awards, and excels in sports. Meacham never gives up. I want you hogs to let this bird know you're here. I want these crackers to wake up and wonder what the hell blew in a town. Okay, hogs, by nightfall I want this camping inspection order. Do you read me loud and clear? Yes, yes sir. sir. I said, do you read me loud and clear? Yes, yes sir. Outstanding. Sergeant, dismiss the troops. Dismissed. He does remind me of someone from the movies, but it's not Rhett Butler. No, it's not. And then you'd start to see, of course, there's a little bit of charm there, and you're laughing. But then that that military discipline turns ugly in the movie, and it becomes demented, and in the end warped, and it destroys the family. And Pat Conroy was one of those little boys listening to those kind of lectures. And then the question Pat had in his head, what do I do with this life and this knowledge? And he decides to, well, write about it and write about it and write about it. And interestingly enough, though his dad was mean to him and his dad beat his wife and his dad was tough on the family and broke the family up and drove the family crazy, he still loved his dad. And in a fascinating discussion that he had with Ann Patchett in Nashville in 2013, and Ann is another terrific writer. He was with her to talk about the book The Death of Santini. Because in the end, when his dad died, well, he needed to, he needed to write about him, honestly. And this was the hardest book he ever had to write, and it was a piece of nonfiction. This great fiction writer now finally able to tell the real, real, unbridled truth about his dad now that he passed. And Conroy tells the story about what it was like to tour with his dad when the books The Great Santini and The Prince of Tides were, well, making him a famous author around this country. What would happen if you and I were talking here tonight? You would see a hulking figure in the background that would appear on stage. He'd break in and figure out a way to come out and sit there to join the conversation. And eventually, he would take over the conversation. But I got moved when he, the great Santini came out, and he hated that book with his body and soul. He hated everything about it. He hated my portrait of him as a father, as a husband, as a Marine. He loathed that book. But I was attacked by his family enough that as I was signing the great Santini and you know, and you know those first books you just mentioned, you know, I had I think twelve intergalactic sales <laughs> during that season. But I noticed Dad would come and sit beside me. And he got in the habit of signing my books with me. <laughs> now for for Dad, with you know, he would sign this way with the great Santini. 
I certainly hope you enjoy my son's work of fiction, and he would underline fiction. <laughs> He'd underline fiction five or six times. And he said, my son certainly has a, an extraordinary imagination. <laughs> and he would sign, oh, lovable, likable, Don Conroy, the great Santini himself. This is kind of normal for the great Santini. He did it for every book I wrote after that. Here's more about his dad. One time I had a big signing in Charlotte of four or five hours. Dad was beside me the whole time. And I got to translate this way, and it may be wrong. I thought it was my father, who was an articulate man, inarticulate man with love. Um, it was his way of telling me he loved me. Because when I, you know, when the Prince of Tides came out, and I said, Dad, what are you signing the Prince of Tides for? <laughs> and my father, in his great modesty, said, I am the seed, son. I am the source. And I said, Dad, you sound like it's a, you know, it's a, it's a cattle food shop. But it was his way of participating in a creative event that I came to appreciate very much. What compassion. You feel it bleeding through the pages, even as he's the toughest critic of his own dad. To love a man, to try and understand why that man did what he did, that's why Pat Conroy's work is loved. I love that he said, quote, My dad was an articulate man, but inarticulate with love. Don't we all know a few fathers like that? This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the life, the work of a great writer, Pat Conroy, author of The Great Santini, The Prince of Tides, both of which were turned into two terrific movies. This is Our American Stories. More on Pat Conroy from Pat Conroy, who was born on this day in history. stories that's bruce springsteen singing a goodbye song to his father it's what's drawn a lot of people to his music it is certainly what drew people to arthur miller's work the father-son relationships and the strains 
And it is most certainly what drew people to Pat Conroy's work, the great Santini and the Prince of Tides in particular, and of course his nonfiction work, The Death of Santini, which was about his father. And so were the other two, in very clear and stark terms. And Pat grew up in Georgia, but he was a, he was a Marine brat. So he grew up on bases all over the country. And his father, as we learned early on in this hour, was a man who was built for war, but never got to really fight one throughout the childhood of young Pat Conroy. And so the home field, battlefield, was what Pat experienced with his dad. And so we pick it up with his conversation with Ann Patchett in Nashville in 2013. Did dad change because of the fiction? This became the question Ann Patchett had. Did dad learn something reading about himself through his son's eyes? You know, I've never seen a guy change because of a, a work of fiction. But I think dad made an effort. And my mother divorcing him at the same time. And, you know, my father. Now, here's my father. Okay, son. And I went to talk with dad. And I said, dad. And he's weeping, which dad never did. He's weeping only. I've got divorce papers from your mother. And he's crying. We're at Manuel's Tavern in Atlanta. He's weeping and crying. And I said, Dad, do you see what you did wrong now? Do you understand what you did wrong? And poor Dad going, yeah. And I said, what do you think it was, Dad? He said, I was way too easy on your mother and the kids. I should have cracked down harder. And I look at him from across the table. I said, Dad, Caligula couldn't have cracked down hard. <laughs> and he said, no, no. This is. He goes to the judge. My mother has given the judge a copy of the great Santini <laughs> and said, it's all here, Your Honor. <laughs> My mother and sister testified on scenes in the great Santini I had invented. I had made up. And dad gets up in court, and this is in Buford, South Carolina. He says, you cannot divorce me, judge. And so the judge, rather surprised, said, oh, really, why not, Colonel? Because I'm a Roman Catholic. And when the family hear this, we all, and he said, I was married forever. And this court has no power to divorce me and Peg. He was divorced about five minutes later. <laughs> but it was dad. It was that, you know, that Marine, hard-charging guy that never changed. That was dad. And you hear that love in his voice, and you hear the audience laughing at something very tragic, and not a silly laugh. And that's a unique gift. And when you read a Pat Conroy book, you laugh a lot at the tragedy. He does not play the victim card. And he has no countenance for it. None. What was his first memory? My first memory was of being in a high chair. And I was in a base in El Toro. And I remember my father beating my mother, backhanding her to the floor 
with her trying to stab him with a butcher knife. And I remember my face, my whole baby face, um, inflamed. And I had, you know, I didn't know how to talk then. And what it was inflamed with, I later realized, was hatred. And I didn't know there was an English word for hatred. So I didn't have to go back for that. That is always with me. That lives with me every day. Uh, I, you know, don't have to do research on it, study it. It is there. It is there. Here he is talking with Ann Patchett about the process he went through with his editors when he was submitting the great Santini. And the editors just couldn't believe that a man this tough and this mean existed. And, well, Pat had to take some liberties. Let's take a listen to this exchange. I would write her these things, and instantly she would write back, Pat, no one will believe this character. He's too mean. He's too horrible. You know, he's not believable, and we will not publish your book. So I kept trying to add scenes, and I got my brothers and sisters together, and I said, did Dad ever screw up and treat us nicely (laughs) when we were growing up? And I I was very serious. And we would think, and you know, we were seven of us then, and we'd think, and I'd think, and finally they came up, no. I said, you get us a hot dog? Nah. (laughs) Take us out for an ice cream cone? Nah. Take us to a ball game? Nah. We could not come up with anything. But Ann Barrett would not believe a guy was knocking us all over the place, hitting us, beating my mother to a pulp. She would not believe it. So I cut that out, and I made up stories that I'd like Dad to have done. He gives his son a flight jacket on his birthday. And I said, what a nice thing that would have been. So I enjoyed writing that scene that never happened. Then his daughter goes to her first prom, and Dad has roses sent to the house. And so when later I asked Dad, do you like those scenes, Dad? Oh, God, I love those scenes. You know, what a great guy I was. <laughs> and I said, Dad, I made them up. You didn't do any of it. Anything you did nice in the book, I invented Ouch. But they still stayed together, this father and son team. And it turns out that Pat Conroy, well, when he wrote Prince of Tides, it got a little rougher on dad, on the father figure. And then when his dad died, well, Pat Conroy was actually finally able to tell the full and complete truth. And when we come back, you're going to hear Pat Conroy talk Well, as starkly as one can about his father, and as humorously, because if you're laughing now, you're going to laugh even harder. The stories he tells are priceless, they're tragic, they're sad, they're funny. Conroy knew how to walk that walk. He loved his dad. He didn't judge his dad. He just spoke honestly and plainly about life as he saw it. This is Lee Habib celebrating the life, the work, the fiction, the brutal, beautiful honesty of Pat Conroy writing about his beloved dad, whom he hated and loved simultaneously. More after these messages.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And for the hour, the life of Pat Conroy. If you don't know his work, pick it up. Go to Amazon. Get the great Santini. And then read The Death of Santini. One, a work of fiction about his dad. And then when he finally dies, a work of nonfiction. You cannot put down either. And they're funny. They're wickedly funny. They're not silly. And Conroy was born this day in history in 1945. And so we're celebrating his life here on Our American Stories. We love music. We love the arts. We've done a tremendous hour in Martin Scorsese, Al Pacino, and so many other creative types. And we'll be doing many more on Literary Lions as we go as well. And let's go back to that Nashville room in 2013 with Ann Patchett, the great writer, interviewing one of her literary heroes, Pat Conroy. We just heard that story about his dad, and Ann Patchett asks a tough question, and here's Pat's rather, I think, sad answer. So do you think you're putting it to rest with this book? Of course not. I, I will bring havoc... You know, I am worried that I'll bring havoc into my deathbed. Uh, The Conroys can't have a wedding, a funeral. We can't do anything normally. None of us. And he says it just so straightforwardly, and he doesn't hate his family. He just, this is the way it is. And we all know families like that, by the way. You get them together and... Oh, my goodness. There goes the wedding. There goes the baseball game. There goes everything. And yet they still get together. So here's a, well, just a ridiculously funny and sad story right out of the death of Santini about his father dying. When dad was actually dying, we split time up with the six kids. Right. And, you know, six-hour intervals because we wanted to give dad a good death. We wanted to, you know, take care of Dad and make sure he was comfortable, make sure he knew he was loved, and all this stuff. And I came over, you know, for a morning shift, and I hear my sister Carol, who's a poet in New York, the most articulate, you know, of all of us. And I hear her screaming at Dad. And I walk inside, and Dad... He's going, to, he's going to be dead in three days. I mean, it's, it's soon. And Carol is screaming this, Anne. You got to tell me you love me, Dad. You got to tell me you love me. And she has tears streaming down his face. You got to tell me you're proud of me, Dad. Proud of my life as a poet. You know, I've made a life as a poet. And it's been hard. It's been in New York City, and I've done it by myself. But you got to tell me you love me, and you got to tell me you're proud of me before you die. Now, this is moving to me as anything can be. So I go in, and of course, I'm the oldest of seven. And I was the, the protector, the lookout, the Rottweiler for the other kids. So I was... Carol said later, he wagged the finger of paternalism. (laughs) And so I wagged it at her. She comes out, and she's just a wreck. And and she's had a lifetime of mental 
illness. She's had a lifetime of estrangement from the family. And she comes out and I said, Carol, it's very important for you to know something. Dad is dying. He's not going deaf. (laughs) You don't have to scream at him. And Carol is a wreck. And she says, Pat, he's never told me he loves me in his whole life. He never told me he's proud of me in his whole life. I've written poems. I've dedicated poems to Dad over and over again. I've done everything I could to make him proud of me. I've needed him my whole life just to tell me he loved me. And does he ever tell you that? And I said, Carol, to tell you the truth, every day the phone rings. And I pick it up and it's dead. It's been going on for 30 years. And the phone rings and it's dad on the phone. I said, hey, Dad, how you doing? And he said, Pat, I just have to tell you this. I love you so much, I cannot even tell you or express it in words. (laughs) And, Pat, I am so proud of your writing. It it makes me want to fall to my knees in gratitude (laughs) for the day that you were born. And I only wish I could feel the same way about Carol. (laughs) He finishes this story. So I finally, I said, Carol, I'm jo- joking. Dad cannot tell us we lo- he loves us. He cannot tell us, you know, he's proud of us. It's the great Santini dying in there. It's not Bill Cosby, okay? <laughs> we know that. We've got to learn how to translate Dad. And, you know, the translation is, it isn't that hard. Dad has tried to show us he's loved us. In his own way. Well, I get Carol to come back in. <laughs> so we are sitting there in my redneck brother-in-law, Bobby Joe. <laughs> now, I ain't got to explain to no Tennessee audience what a redneck is, okay? <laughs> but when I tell you Bobby Joe makes your relatives look like Rockefellers... <laughs> And you cannot figure out who your brothers and sisters are going to marry. That is part of life. is most difficult. Bobby Joe comes in. <laughs> and his redneck as they come. And he looks over my father and he goes, Hey, old man, how you feeling? Dad would be dead in two and a half days. I hear him say in a weakened voice, I love you, Bobby Joe. I'm proud of you, Bobby Joe. And my sister goes off like a Roman candle, and she goes for his throat with both hands, and both of us have to pull Carol off my dying father. And that came out of the Death of Santini, this remarkable book that Ann Patchett was discussing with Pat Conroy. And here is Ann talking about 
her thoughts about Pat Conroy's book and this exchange. But, Ann, this is the kind of thing that, you know, that haunts me and follows me and hunts me down, whether I want to or not. This is so confusing, though, and this is your brilliance. You're making us laugh. You're making us laugh. I laughed my head off through this book, and it is a tragedy. I mean, it's the saddest book in the world, and I was gasping. I was laughing so hard. See, Anne, like, you know, I cannot... Uh, see, and I, you know, I t- tell you, that, you know, these are horrible stories. You know, when my brother... I had a brother commit suicide. It was the worst thing that's ever happened to us. He was the youngest brother. He was a paranoid schizophrenic. He leaps off a building, 14-story building, in Columbia, South Carolina, and he is a disaster, Ian. I mean, we have to bury him almost the next day because it's the middle of August, and his head is just, everything has come apart. And they scrape him up. And we've got to get this thing together. And my father, you know, and dad, you know, he gets on the phone. I said, Dad, are you okay? And my father, again, is crying so hard. And he says to me, and this nearly broke my heart, Ann. He says, Pat, I lost my baby boy. You don't know what it's like to lose your baby. And you don't. And then he was asked why he didn't write this book when he was young, this first raw piece of nonfiction. And he gave a great answer. Okay, here's what would have happened. And I can answer this honestly, Ann. Father Jim is at the podium. We have come here to celebrate the life and death of Pat Conroy. (laughs) He was killed by my brother, who is now in federal penitentiary. In a fit of rage, I could not have done it when I was younger. I was still too full of denial. I had to go through therapy. I had to find out things about myself I did not know. I'd have to find out things about myself I hated. And I couldn't have written it then. And that's the truth. And that is what is so compelling about this final work. He needed his father to die in order to really dig in. And we're talking about the life of Pat Conroy for the hour. He was born this day in history in 1945. And again, that last book, a piece of nonfiction called The Death of Santini, you can just read that alone and know everything you need to know about this author, his life, and his father's life. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Pat Conroy's story, born this day in history.
is Our American Stories, and every once in a while, it's important to dig down deep and bring you the stories that affect your lives, the kind of stories that matter to you the most. In this groundbreaking journalistic endeavor you're about to hear, our executive producer, Jesse Edwards, will shake America to its foundation with his profound and timeless retrospection into the time and lives of the Internet of Things and the Internet favorite, Talking Cats. Test one, two. Testing one, two. Every once in a while, we like to treat ourselves to the nonsensical musings of the common domestic house cat. Like this little guy, for example. We think he has rabies. You probably don't want to touch or go near a cat that sounds like this. But kids love talking cats. Like this little guy. He sure doesn't like to be pet. Our cat's fun. What lovely house pets. Like this little psycho. He's screaming the word no because he doesn't want to take a bath. Pure nightmare fuel. And this is perhaps the world's most famous talking cat. He's known as the Olong Johnson cat. Let's listen to what he's saying. Oh, my dog. Oh, Long John. Oh, Long John. Oh, Long Johnson. Oh, Long Johnson. Oh, Don Piano. Oh, Don Piano. Why I eyes All the live long day. And last but not least, there's this creepy little guy known as the ISIS terrorist cat from deep in the heart of Syria. And this has been Talking Cats on Our American Stories. And thank you for that report, Jesse. That's very good. Very serious. (laughs) By the way, we love shifting moods and themes, and from that serious report to an even more serious report, the man who's been delivering us inspiring fortunes that come from the inside of fortune cookies is nearly out of ideas. For 30 years, Donald Lau has served as chief fortune writer at Wonton Foods, which builds itself as the largest manufacturer of fortune cookies, noodles, and other Chinese staples in the world. Now, he's stepping down. Why? He's got writer's block. But not all hope is lost. When Donald Lau bought the Wonton Food Factory in the 1980s, he started writing fortunes to go inside the fortune cookies. And now, decades later... He's passing the baton to his son, James Wong. Here's Donald and his son, James, talking about this peaceful exchange of power. When we bought the factory uh, back in the mid-80s, we decided to update the fortunes. And since my English was uh, the best among the group, uh, I was given the job. I guess I got the job by default. Writing fortunes was never uh, part of my career projection. I'm Don Olao. I've been with uh, Wonton Food for oh, more than 30 years now. My dad was with the company. Uh, he's now retired. So I would come around to the factories when I was at a very young age. That's how I got to know the business, basically just spending time there. My name is James Wong. Um, 
role I have many. I'm in charge of overseeing IT, purchasing, and of course, fortune writing. Well, in the old days, uh, all the fortunes were um, the horoscope type uh, fortunes. Uh, uh, you will do this and this, you will meet uh, that person, uh, you will find love, uh, things like that. But over time, we introduced some Chinese philosophy and humor into the uh, fortune cookies. This role is kind of coming more prominent for me because Donald is saying that he should hand it off. Well, I'm getting uh, a writer's block more often, so that's why James is, uh, will be helping out and uh, he'll be taking over the responsibility. Me and Donald always joke around with the fortunes that it, that's in his head that he's thinking about. Uh, eventually, I kind of fell into the role. Fortune writing is the, the, the most fun of all the jobs that I can think of in the company. And usually, the inspiration would come from people around me. And also, there is definitely some type of philosophy that you need to keep in mind. Fortune cookies reaches everyone. A lot of times, I think about my daughter uh, and what kind of advice that I would give her. Failure is the mother to success. There are legal concerns whether we might risk a chance of getting sued. And it was apparently read by someone that is having trouble with the marriage. The husband is about to go off on a business trip. He was in a Chinese restaurant with his wife and got his fortune cookie. The message read, romance is in the air in your next trip. The wife got very upset and decided that it's our fault. There is a risk with anything that we write, but we still need to keep a positive attitude about it. There's a sense of seriousness in the office, and uh, fortune writing is definitely the outlet for our sense of humor. My daughter uh, became a doctor, and I asked her, uh, why do you want to be a doctor? And she said, I want to make people feel better. So I came up with a fortune that says, want to make people feel better? Forget med school. Go into comedy instead. Your fortune, it's complicated. <laughs> I came up with one which will not be in the uh, fortune. Don't run for president. You're not a good liar. And another one, uh, you know that most fortune cookies are eaten in Chinese restaurants. You are what you eat, but you still don't look Chinese. <laughs> Come more often. You will soon become such a VIP that the NSA will listen to your phone calls. <laughs> we try to be humorous keep things a little lighthearted. And this is Lee Habib talking cats, fortune cookie writers. And by the way, Wanton Food makes a staggering 4.5 million cookies each day in their Queens, New York factory. Great job on this, Jesse, as always. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. I could escape this feeling It's my channel. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. 
And it's time for our series called The Founding, where we bring you the never-told stories of things we all love and how the heck they came to be. We brought you Home Depot's story, Walmart's, Myers, Ford's, Cancer Treatment Centers of America, and so many more. And today, our own Alex Cortez brings us the founding story of one of your favorite foods. At least it's one of Alex's. Take it away. A young man named Ralph F. Steyer dropped out of high school to work. To work to support his parents and his five younger siblings. It was the Great Depression. And he was just one month away from graduating. He married a girl named Alice, and they had nothing. Nothing but a dream that they were going to be successful. Their future son, Ralph C. Steyer, said, They didn't know where their next meal was coming from, and they weren't going to live like that. So when the couple could, they saved $11,000 to be exact so that they could purchase a little sausage shop in, of all towns, Johnsonville, Wisconsin. Yes, that Johnsonville. And according to his son, one of those jobs where the father saved was skinning calves at a packing plant in Milwaukee. And he was good at it. Too good. He'd been in the union, and he left the union because all the union guys, he was really good at his job, and he could do three times what anybody else could do, and they, they threatened his life. They said, we'll, we'll beat the shit out of you if, you if you keep this up. If his father worked too hard, they would have to work hard too, or look bad, and either option was unacceptable to them. Easier to do when you're not the one foot in the bills. And when his father became the one footing the bills in his small sausage operation with three stores, and where his son was one of only seven people actually making the sausage, he and his son got a feeling that the same people who physically threatened him would now be threatening them in another way. It was clear to us that if we didn't put in a pension or profit sharing plan or something, a retirement plan for our folks, we were gonna wind up with a union. And almost no business of this size offers such benefits. They're usually just trying to survive and can't afford something like this that they'd actually want to do. But the two Ralphs knew what they had to do. After his dad's experience in a union, they weren't going to let that happen to their company. And in order to offer benefits like profit sharing, they had to change their business from a partnership to a corporation, and to avoid triggering massive taxes with this change, they split the partnership into two separate corporations, a retail-focused one with the shops that they owned, and a wholesale-focused one that sold sausage to grocery stores. That was interesting because I'm sitting there with the accountant saying, well, why don't you split these up? And the accountant says, well, you know, I'm not comfortable with that. And we have Dudley Godfrey, who's a senior, senior Godfrey and Con, 150 lawyers in Milwaukee, and he's sitting there with us. He was our counsel, my mom and dad, and this accountant. And, oh, well, how about if we did this? Well, no, I'm not comfortable with that. Oh, okay. Well, how about this or that or this or that? 
I'm, I'm the one having the dialogue. Paris Hilton. So, and you're 25. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, I'm I'm not comfortable with that either. I looked across the table. George, there's a limit to how comfortable I want you to be. <laughs> you get it? I'm not here to make you comfortable. You're here to tell me how we can do this. And I'm telling you, my parents looked at me. This guy's an older guy, but I've had enough. And Dudley looked at me. You tell me how we can get it done. And, so he said, well, if you really split these, and if you don't have anything to do with the retail, if you don't have anything to do with the retail, just a few folks at the wholesale, your mom and dad do the retail, you can have a division like that. I think that it would pass. Fine. But that's what we we're talking about all along. But okay, good. I wanted to do wholesale. I didn't want him to do it retail. Retail was a death. It was never going anywhere. At the same time, I said to my dad, Dad, we got to tell these people what we're doing. They're employees. Let's just tell them so they know. We're doing it. We know we're going to do it. Let's... No, you don't say a word until it's done. Why, Dad? Well, because you never know. I said, then we gotta. We should tell them we're doing it, and uh, we should let them know we're doing it. We're working on it. We're finishing up the legal yeah. work. What's the harm in telling them if we don't tell them we're gonna have a union here, Dad? He's, no, you don't say a word. On Monday, the telegram came in from the union saying we have uh, we have met with your people. They've all signed cards, and we're gonna come up to start the process of negotiating with you. Their gut was right. The union would make a move on their business and had already spoken with all of their employees without them knowing this. Well, we had an election and the union lost the election. Nobody voted for it. And the NLRB said, you have unfair labor practices. You destroyed the uh, majority. We're setting the election aside. You still have to negotiate with them. And that was it for my dad. He was really upset. So we had this really sharp legal counsel. I said, we're going to appeal this. He said, don't appeal it. If you appeal it and you lose, then the courts are going to be looking at you like a hawk. He says, you know, as they said, you have to negotiate. They didn't say you have to agree. Let's just negotiate for the next year and make sure you maintain your majority and they'll be powerless. So I spent a year negotiating, and my dad had nothing to do with it, and that was kind of the end of it for him. So the employees were already on our side. So finally, after a year, right at the end of the year, I said, I think you got a pretty good deal here. Why don't you take it to your membership? And uh, it was a terrible deal. <laughs> it was way less than what the guys were getting. So you presented them a proposal that was less than the employees were currently getting? Yeah, and, and, other, bad, and other bad stuff, too. And I said, Ticket to your membership. And he had no membership, and I knew he had no membership. He turned purple. He turned purple. He was trying to control himself. He had a pipe. He used a pipe as a tool and kind of calm himself down. And so instead of saying anything, he got his pipe out, and he was going to light his pipe, he couldn't strike the match. <laughs> he turned purple. He was shaking so bad he couldn't strike the match. <laughs> I'll never forget. Richard Greenlaw. And, never forget uh, that name. Huh? And then, uh, a few days later, we got a telegram saying that they've withdrawn their deal, which, which gave them the right to come back in a year, but they've never come back. And Johnsonville, by the way, was already facing some pretty tough obstacles, as all small businesses are. It turns out only half of new companies 
ever make it past the first five years, let alone 10, only a third make it to 10. By the way, people don't know this. When a guy saves up money or a family saves up money or a woman does to start that business, again, listen to that number. A third will survive the first 10 years. That means two-thirds are wiped out. And say you make it to becoming one of the largest companies. Let's take that just if. Your odds of staying there? Really low, too. Of the Fortune 500 companies in 1955, a mere 12% are still on that list. Many don't exist at all. By the way, have you ever heard of Armstrong Rubber? Of course not. But they were big. Neither have I. And by the way, that's just part of, well, creative destruction and old jobs going away, new jobs coming. And be grateful to live in a country like that because the countries where the same companies are always up there, you can guarantee they're coddled up to big government and you can guarantee that no new jobs are getting created and you can guarantee that the economy is terrible. And again, it is very difficult to be displaced from your job. There's nothing tougher. But imagine never being able to get a job because there are no new jobs. And so there are costs and there are benefits. And by the way, the two Ralphs, and we learned that there are two Ralphs, they not only face those headwinds, the difficulty of just staying alive, but also the one of theirs being a family-owned company, where when the second generation takes over, 70% of them fail. With Johnsonville, they only got stronger. And in 2015, Ralph Steyer, the second-generation owner, did something Well, it's difficult to do in a family-owned business. He's letting someone out of the family run the ship. When we talked to him, he said, look, this is a meritocracy. we got to find the best person. And he said he did. When we come back, the story of Ralph Steyer, the story of Johnsonville Sausage, a great American company, and for our money, the great sausage company in America, and the biggest sausage company in America, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with our series, The Founding. This one on Johnsonville Sausage. And let's continue with Alex's conversation with its owner, Ralph C. Stare. And then Ralph told me about one of the other early characters in their business. There's so many people who do so many bad things in life, so many stupid, short-sighted things. They just hurt themselves. Yeah. And if you just do things right all the time, it's amazing how it adds it. You can see, it adds up pretty well. <laughs> so this fellow, Donnie Sinkman, they worked at my parents' storage in Oregon on Saturday mornings. He also, during the week, drove a truck, this jobber, Gus Ahold, for Sheboygan Sausage Company, which was the big sausage company back then. 
That word jobber was a new one to me. So I looked it up and it's industry lingo for a person with a truck with a perishable item in it, like sausage. And they go around wholesaling it, selling it to retailers for cash. And Gus had two trucks. He was an older guy, he had a son, Richard Ahom, and then Donnie drove the other truck. And Gus always promised Donnie, when I retire, you're getting that truck, you're gonna be your own jobber. And so one Monday morning, Donnie came into work and the, the invoices used to say, Gus Alholm and son, they came in on Monday morning and it said, Richard Alholm. And Gus gave both businesses and Donnie was supposed to work with Richard. Well, Richard was not a very productive person. And Donnie says, I'll never work for that, Richard. So he came to my dad and me and said, would you back me if I wanted to go out on my own? You make great sausage. Would you back me if I want to? Heck yes, we will. So Donnie, he had enough money to buy a truck. And he had to wait for the truck, but he started delivering it <laughs> in a car or just a station <laughs> Just a normal station wagon, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hate. To, I shudder to think of how we used this business. And way back then, it was different. You know? Oh yeah. He got in there and he said, "Put our sausage in." And he started selling. He was working it. Within a year, all the Sheboygan sausage was not only his route, the other route too. Richard Allen was out of business. Sheboygan sausage was out of business, and Johnsonville sausage was in business within a year. So, if you think that God doesn't have a plan for it. If you want to say, oh, look how smart I was, look what I did. I'm here to tell you, there may, somebody might, there may be somebody out there that is that smart, but it sure as heck isn't me, all right? <laughs> yeah, you didn't plan that guy coming into your business. God life. had a plan. Right, we're only getting started, okay? <laughs> Donnie puts the sausage in the two stores in Fond du Lac, Century stores, Godfrey Company. They had 90 stores around the state. Wow. I always looked at those stores and thought, geez, wouldn't that be nice to be in there? I have no idea how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so he puts this in there and it's doing great. And Harlan Crouch, Crouch Brothers, they had two stores. But the supervisor for Century Stores came in. He looked and he saw that he had our products in the deli department and in the meat department. And the supervisor said, well, we've got to fix this up. You can't have them in both places. You've got to have them either one or the other. And Harlan Crouch looked at me and says, you see that name on there, Crouch Brothers Century Stores? As long as that's on there, that product stays there because I make more money on that than anything else in the store. <laughs> They're kidding me. Oh yeah? So they saved the invoices for a month and the guy looked at how much sausage they were selling and said, oh my gosh, we don't do anything like this in any of our stores. Next thing we know, I have no idea this is going on. Nothing. And then we'll forget phone rings down the sausage kitchen. My dad picks up the phone. Yep, hello, huh? Okay, yep, I'm watching. I have no idea what's going on. Yep, okay, you're sure? Yeah, oh, fine. Okay, whatever you, sure. yep, whatever you say. Glad to talk, okay, no problem. Yep, okay, thank you. Hangs up the phone. I said, what was that? That was Jim Godfrey from Godfrey Company. They want to come up and see us about carrying our sausage. Huh? Really, really? <laughs> When's he coming? When's he coming? He didn't say. 
Did you ask him? I said, no. For, for, so now for four or five days, I'm bugging my dad. Call him back and find out when they're coming. Call him back. And this is my dad. Let him call us. Don't appear too anxious. So there's a lot of wisdom. Yeah. We were a good team. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> call him and then, you know. <sighs> so they come up. And we just got this little... You know, Johnsonville, we had this little butcher shop. You know, we have this little retail area. Yeah. And we're sitting in there, and they're sitting, we're sitting there together in this little retail. We don't have an office. We don't have anything, you know. No office, nothing. And Jim Godfrey, 90 stores, Godfrey Company. So we'd like to do this. We're all done. And then Jim Godfrey says, is there anything else you could do for us? And my dad says, didn't have to. The deal was done. He says, We'll give you an exclusive in Milwaukee. You know, I tried to grab the words before they got to it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, What no, a smart no. question for that guy. Oh, it's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> it was brilliant at this point. Oh, no, Dan. No. I thought you were going to say we're going to give up our stores. No, no. Oh, gosh, no, no. That's why I drew the line north of Plymouth. Yeah, yeah. You know, to get started. Who knows what's going to happen, but that Plymouth store was a coal mine. Oh, man. So, dang, we're doing really good business. Next spring, Oscar Ward, the vice president of Nita operations for Peter Wigan, another 80, 90 stores, but nothing in Milwaukee. It's perfect. I couldn't have taken them to Milwaukee. Exclusive! You think God doesn't set this stuff up? He comes driving through. You have to see where Johnson is. You got to come off the railroad, you got to go around. I was just passing through. I thought I'd stop and say hi. <laughs> you were just passing through. Right yeah, to where? <laughs> where were you passing through to? <laughs> Can't get anywhere from here. <laughs> so they wanted to carry our sausage. So we started up in the valley with them. And we were doing really good. Then we wanted to do Racine Kenosha. And he said, you can do Racine Kenosha. We've got to have it in Sheboygan too. So I said, okay. And then I, I was done, I had to have a chat with Dad. Because Dad says, oh, we can't do that. It'll destroy our store. So, boy, well, then, don't make a lot of money in that store. So all those stores, is because, oh, no, 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 no. Those stores put you through college, Ralph. Well, I said, yeah, and every night when I go to bed, I say, thank you, stores. Thank you so much, stores, for putting me through college. <laughs> but they're the past, Dad. This is the future. And the father ended up empowering his son. And the son turned out to be right. And great job on that, Alex. And what a voice. Just a guy. It just sounds like a guy you might meet at a bar. And he is, actually. And we heard great stories about father and son. And we love father-son stories and family stories. We heard earlier... The son gleaning wisdom from the father who said, son, wait for them to call us. Don't be in a rush. And boy, that sounds like an older person telling a younger person because we're always in a rush when we're young. And yet at the same time, when confronted with the future of the business, the son pushed back at the dad. And in the end, where the future was going, where the future was, the son was right. And that's a unique father-son relationship where they can have that give and take. I think we all long for that. 
By the way, if you get a chance, listen to our On Leadership series with Ralph Steyer, a remarkable story in which Ralph confesses that he almost caused Johnsonville Sausages to go out of business because he was a selfish, sort of narcissistic boss. And one day, God got into his life. He got out of the way. And, well, all kinds of good things started happening when he gave credit to his people, gave power to his people, and just, well, just cheerleaded them on. Ralph Steyer's story, Johnsonville Sausage's story, here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now and then, we love to throw to Jesse's favorite segment, and he brings us, well, he brings this to us when he feels like it. Let's take a listen. (laughs) Shower thoughts. People shouldn't be allowed to use the bathroom on an airplane for flights lasting under two hours. If you can't hold it for that long, too bad. I'm sorry your mommy didn't teach you any self-control. I'd like to think that money wouldn't change who I am, but when I'm winning Monopoly, I become a terrible person. If organized crime started printing high-quality counterfeit college textbooks and then sold them at cut-rate prices, it'd be a really good public relations move. If pigs could fly, I bet their wings would taste delicious. When boarding an airplane, first-class passengers are forced to sit at eye level with the coach passengers' crotches as they board. Airlines could solve this problem by letting first-class board last. Sometimes pets are better than children. They eat less, they don't ask for money, and if they get pregnant, you can just sell their babies. Dog food could say it's any flavor it wants to. You're not going to test it. When I was a small kid, my grandma used to show me love by playing along with my make-believe games. Now that she's older and has dementia, it's my turn to show love by playing along with hers. If you accuse someone of being argumentative, they can't disagree with you without proving your point. Why would anybody buy a bookmark for a dollar when they could use a dollar for a bookmark? According to most ghost photos, our clothes must have a soul too, otherwise all ghosts would be photographed naked. The kind of people who close the shade on an airplane window should be placed on the terrorist watch list and not be allowed to fly. These people are the last kind of soul-sucking vampires I would want to die with if, God forbid, the plane went down in flames over the sun-scorched desert. Shouldn't billboards be illegal since they distract you from the road? If you wash the dirt from a fallen ice cube, you're washing your water with water and hope that there's only water on the water that you will add to your water. Shower thoughts. (laughs) Well, thanks for that, Jesse, as always. And next, we're bringing you Melissa Fenton, who runs the website www.fourboysmother.com. As you might guess, Melissa is a wife and a mother of four boys and writes humorous and heartfelt essays about modern parenting and nostalgia. 
We've all heard about that tragic accident at Disney World where two parents enjoying a vacation with their kids suddenly and violently had their world torn upside down when an alligator took their two-year-old boy in front of their very eyes. The father suffered numerous wounds as he fought a losing battle for his young, helpless son in the alligator's clutches. The mother even ran to help and also suffered wounds. Tragically, in the end, the young boy was not saved. And the day after the accident, Melissa Fenton penned a fantastic essay, Open Letter to Perfect Parents, Put Down Your Pitchforks, that went absolutely viral. And, well, she recorded it for us. Let's take a listen to Melissa's poignant rant that rivals some of Hengler's very best rants. Parents, I beg of you, stop blaming and shaming other parents. 35 years ago, a mom shopping in a Sears department store went to go look at lamps and left her six-year-old with another group of boys who were all trying out the new Atari game at a kiosk. That boy's name was Adam Walsh. 30 years ago, an 18-month-old toddler playing in her aunt's backyard fell into a well. Rescuers worked nonstop for 58 hours, finally freeing baby Jessica from the well. In both cases, a tragedy happened. An unforeseen tragic accident took place which left Adam dead and a toddler fighting for her life deep underground. But they also had something else in common. They had an entire country of moms and dads supporting the grieving parents. Let me repeat that. Everyone supported the rescue efforts without blame. No blame. None. Zero. No questions asked. Not one single, where were their parents, comment. Just a country of other moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, watching in horror as a set of parents, one of their own, went through the unthinkable. Adam was everybody's son, and Jessica was everybody's daughter. Those parents were us. Flash forward to 2016, the year of the perfect parent. Yesterday, a two-year-old boy splashing in the magical lakefront waters of a Disney resort succumbed to the wilds of Mother Nature. An aggressive alligator scooped him out of the water right under the watch of his father, who attempted to fight with the alligator to free his baby son. Pure horror. Sheer terror. Parents who actually had to watch their baby be taken from them as if they were in some African nature documentary. A tragic and unforeseeable accident. An accident. I weep for this mother and father. I am sick with anguish for the pain, agony, misery, and regret, regret pulsing through their veins this very second. And I bet you are too. But not everyone is. You see, we now live in a time where accidents are not allowed to happen. You heard me. Accidents, of any form, in any way, and at any time, well, they just don't happen anymore. Why? Because blame and shame. Because we have become a nation of blamers and shamers. And how are accidents allowed to happen if we can't blame someone? Surely they can't, right? I mean, random acts of nature, unpreventable tragedies, and fateful life-changing events that take place in a matter of nanoseconds cannot possibly take place if everyone is being a responsible parent, right? Nope. They can't, because this country and its population of perfect pitchfork-carrying mothers and fathers, sitting behind keyboards, 
needs to accuse. They need to blame, to disparage, to criticize in every damn way and at every damn corner the parenting of another. And when do they really get to lick their blaming chops? When a tragic accident happens. That's when the pouncing is at its freshest. When raw emotion and ignorance collide and they dig their word claws in and take hold of whatever grace these grieving mothers and fathers have left in their souls. And they tear it out. Listen to me very carefully, perfect parents. Very carefully. I've had enough. I've had enough of scrolling through comment threads and seeing over and over again questions like, Where were the parents? And thoughts like, this is what happens when you don't watch your kids. I've simply had enough. I have one question for the blaming and shaming moms and dads. You know the ones who immediately blame the parents. The ones who go on the internet and type comments like, this is nothing but neglect by the parents. And, they should have known better. Who was watching that little boy? And my personal favorite, I would never let that happen to my kid. Here's my question. Have you ever been to a child's funeral before? Because I have. The funeral of a child is an event in life that you never, ever want to experience. Now let me ask you another question. In the coming week, these parents will fly back to their home in Nebraska without one of their children. They will leave a vacation resort, packing up his Buzz Lightyear pajamas and his favorite blanket, and they will make an excruciatingly difficult journey home. A journey that they never in a million years thought they would be making. They will meet with a funeral director, pick out a tiny casket, a tiny burial suit, and surrounded by family, they will bury their baby boy, and they will suffer every single day for the rest of their life. At the funeral for this two-year-old boy who died in front of his parents, can you do me a favor? Can you walk up to that mother and say the words that you just typed out last week? Can you? Can you greet her, hug her, shake the father's hand, and then say, Who was watching that little boy? You should have known better. I would never let that happen to my child. Can you do that for me? I mean, you felt those words so deeply in your heart and soul that you typed them for a million people to read. Certainly, you can say it straight to the faces of the people you meant it for, right? Here, let me help you. Put away your pitchfork for a moment and try this. To the mother and father who went for a walk and vacation for the last time with their little boy yesterday, I am deeply sorry that you had to experience the worst kind of tragedy possible, an accident. I grieve with you. Your baby was my baby. Your son was my son. I have nothing but love for you, love to help you get through the pain yesterday, today, and for what is going to seem like a thousand tomorrows. I wrap my thoughts and prayers around your aching heart and soul. May the God of this universe, in some miraculous way, bring peace to you and your family. That is what you say. That. And just that. Stop blaming. Stop shaming. In their darkest hours, can we please just love other parents? Please? And that was Melissa Fenton, author of An Open Letter to Perfect Parents. Put down your pitchforks. 
Couldn't agree more. That's why we ran it. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And if you want to hear more of our content, more of our storytelling, go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org.